This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Tiamat. But what about Tiamat? Sorry, we did promise not too long ago to stop opening with segues from prior episodes. After all, it alienates new listeners. And we love new listeners. And we also love all of our fans telling us about their efforts to help their friends find the show. Thanks, gaming word nerds. Speaking of segues, did you know that segue comes from the same linguistic root as non sequitur? They both come from the Latin word sequor, which means to follow. The Italian word seguire became a musical term. In music, to make a segue is to make a smooth transition from one theme to the next. On the other hand, non sequitur means something that does not logically follow from something else. Generally, it's a type of humor. But those two words aren't as opposite as you think. See, both a segue and a non sequitur involve a transition from one subject to another. But a segue is a smooth transition, and a non sequitur is an abrupt, illogical transition. And that, new listeners, is what we do here. We get very distracted by wordplay. But if you stuck that out, if you actually enjoyed that, welcome home. Speaking of segues, we don't often do multi-part episodes. But every so often a topic comes up in one episode that demands further attention in another episode. Last week, for example, we discussed how Bahamut, whose name incidentally is not to be confused with Baphomet or Behemoth, despite some accounts, went from a giant Persian space fish to the king of all good dragons to a magical spell in Final Fantasy. And we mentioned that at the same time that E. Gary Gygax and Robert J. Kuntz suddenly decided Bahamut was a good name for absolutely no reason, they also decided to name Bahamut's sibling, Tiamat. And we had so much fun connecting D&D and Final Fantasy and Cosmic Space Fish and Astronomy and Odin and The Simpsons that we decided to see what would happen if we looked at Tiamat. Tiamat and Bahamut were born at the same time. In terms of the publication history of D&D, that is. In terms of their births in the fictional universe of D&D, that's another story. And in terms of their births in the mythological history of the real world, Tiamat may have about two centuries on Bahamut. But let's take this one step at a time. Back in 1975, Gygax and Kuntz published the Greyhawk Supplement, which was basically just a book about the world in which Gary Gygax ran his home D&D campaign, The World of Greyhawk. In it, they identified two rulers of all dragon kind, the King of Lawful Dragons and the Queen of Chaotic Dragons. In 1977, these rulers were given the names Bahamut and Tiamat. And as near as we can tell, they got those names because someone thought they sounded like cool names for dragon gods. And just like Bahamut, Tiamat 
also appeared as a dragon in the first Final Fantasy game. She was one of the four elemental fiends. She ruled the Flying Castle and guarded the magical crystal of air, which was one of the four keystones of all existence. Because that's a good way to build all of reality, centered around four easily captured or destroyed mystical keystones. Seriously, why do fantasy gods keep doing this sort of thing? Tiamat proved to be more popular than Bahamut, and that probably goes back to Chris Perkins' Ave Maria problem, which we discussed back in our episode on Deva, and we certainly are giving listeners a lot of homework this week. Tiamat earned a full write-up in Dragon Magazine issue number 38 in 1980, and then, three years later, Ed, King of the Realms Greenwood, described her as the ruler of the first layer of the Nine Hells, Avernus, in his multi-part series on Hell. And Tiamat has been an iconic part of D&D lore ever since. In fact, she was so iconic that many of us older gamers remember her from the Dungeons & Dragons cartoon. We were going to say fondly remember, but let's be honest, the cartoon was kind of terrible. In the early 1980s, TSR, Tactical Studies Rules, the company that published D&D, TSR sort of went a little license crazy. The thing is, Gygax and TSR had run into a bunch of money problems. And in the end, Gygax ended up transferring ownership of the company to his business partner, Brian Bloom, and his brother Kevin. The Bloom brothers believed that D&D was the most imaginative game on the market. And they may have been instrumental in getting Steve Jackson of GURPS and Munchkin fame into role-playing games. They felt Gygax was being too conservative. They wanted to see D&D everywhere. And so, there was a period where you could buy all sorts of D&D merchandise. Lunchboxes, toys even beach balls. Seriously. Because nothing says role-playing game of epic fantasy adventure like inflatable beach ball. And thus the D&D cartoon was born. What most people don't realize is how many big names were involved in this silly cartoon. For example, CBS distributed it in the United States. And it was produced by TSR, of course and Marvel Productions. Now, that name might sound vaguely familiar to you if you've been near a movie theater anywhere in the entire world in the last few years. Yes, we mean that Marvel. In the 80s, they had a production company. And if you believe that Optimus Prime died for our sins in 1986, you know some of their other works. As for who actually animated the thing, perhaps you've heard of a little foreign animation studio called Toei. Yes, that Toei. Let's just say that if you were to count everything Toei had ever been involved in, you'd probably get to... Over 9,000! Incidentally, If we wanted to play a sort of Kevin Bacon game of connections to Tiamat, we could point out that Toei 
employed Akira Toriyama, who did the character design for Dragon Quest. And the Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy games had a huge rivalry in Japan. In the D&D cartoon, which ran for three seasons between 1983 and 1985, six kids were pulled into the realm of Dungeons and Dragons by a magical roller coaster at an amusement park. And for those wondering, here's the quick roll call. You had Hank the Ranger and Eric the Cavalier, who were the oldest at 15. Then you had Sheila the Thief, Diana the Acrobat, and Albert the Magician, better known as Presto. They were teenagers. And finally, Bobby the Barbarian was between seven and eight years old and ran around in furry underpants with his pet unicorn. And Uni has earned the Word of the Week award for the most grating voice, utterance, or sound of any kind in any children's television work ever. The kids met a magical old man named the Dungeon Master who granted them each a single magical weapon appropriate to their class. The show's primary antagonists were an evil wizard named Venger, who sought the magical weapons, and a five-headed, multicolored dragon named Tiamat, who was basically there to provide more generalized cartoon villainy. Because, of course, she is the Queen of Chaos. But, like Bahamut, Tiamat is a name that got repurposed somewhat. But unlike the cosmic fish that was Bahamut, Tiamat is a lot closer to her real-world mythological namesake. However, to find out who she was, we need to travel back in time more than 8,000 years to the birthplace of human civilization. We're going back to Mesopotamia, and we may just be looking at the oldest story in the world that we still remember. And that isn't hyperbole. Tiamat is described in the Enuma Elish, which may just be the oldest recorded creation myth on Earth. This myth was recorded on seven stone tablets in ancient cuneiform. Several copies of the tablets were discovered at various sites in the Middle East, the oldest dating back to 1100 BCE but the tablets themselves indicated that they were merely copies of a much older story. And the seven tablets of creation, as they are sometimes called, tell the story of the creation of the universe and of a great war between the gods of humanity and primordial beings. According to the myth, before the universe existed, there was nothing but a swirling sea and the sea became differentiated between fresh water and salt water. And from these two waters came two primordial beings, Apsu and Tiamat. And those beings immediately did what all newly formed beings always do. They gave birth to a whole bunch of new beings. The young gods are loud and boisterous, and they distract Apsu from his sleep and his work. Basically, they were the first new parents ever. So, 
Apsu decided to do what any father would do in this situation. He said, I'm going to kill those kids. But Tiamat was afraid he meant it, so she warned her oldest and favorite son, Inki. And he did what any kid would do in that situation. He put his father to sleep, murdered him, and carved out his home from the fallen god's remains. But Tiamat is actually furious about the whole thing. She didn't actually expect Enki to kill Apsu. So she does what any mother would do in this situation. After a brief consultation with Gwingu, the god of fate, Tiamat summons the forces of chaos and creates eleven horrible monsters and goes to war with her kids. See? Parenting hasn't changed that much over the last 8,000 years, has it? Enki and his siblings go to war with their primordial mother and her eleven monsters, but they are no match for a woman who basically gave birth to the universe and controls the forces of chaos. Then, a champion appears among the gods, Marduk. And Marduk kills the god of fate and then shoots Tiamat dead with an arrow. The blood from her eyes becomes two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. And from Tiamat's remains, Marduk creates Earth. There's also a bit about claiming the Tablets of Fate because apparently whoever holds them gets to rule the cosmos. Marduk also binds the eleven monsters as pets. Then, for an encore, Marduk convinced Ea the god of wisdom, to create humanity to serve the gods. And then Marduk goes on to create the netherworlds. What's interesting, though, is that this whole story may not have been written to tell the story of the creation of the universe. See, Mesopotamia was home to several civilizations. The Enuma Elish is the Babylonian story of creation. And the thing is, their neighbors, the Sumerians, had their own ideas about this whole story. The Sumerians revered Enlil, one of the other gods in this particular story. Enlil was the king of the gods. He was the god of wind and water, and he brought agriculture to people. But the Babylonians had their own favorite god, Marduk. And they may have disseminated the Enuma Elish as an advertisement for their favorite god. In fact, the end of the seventh tablet is a bunch of poetry just outright praising Marduk. It's as if the last Harry Potter book had several chapters tacked on that just listed Harry's best personality traits and told you why Harry Potter should be your favorite character. While we're on this subject, do you want to know who else is related to Tiamat? How about Gozer the Gozerian? That's right, we're talking Ghostbusters. See, you might notice, as we did, that Tiamat is a primordial being from the Sumerian, Mesopotamian, and Hittite religions. And that particular list of ancient civilizations is the list of Gozer worshippers that Egon Spengler of the Ghostbusters got from Tobin's Spirit Guide. Yes, Gozer the Traveler. Gozer the Destructor, a.k.a. the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. So does Gozer have any actual relation to Tiamat? 
Can we write Bahamut Gozer fanfic? Can we maybe even argue that the D&D cartoon and the Ghostbusters cartoon share a universe? Well, yes and no. The no comes from the fact that Gozer is entirely made up. That is to say, there is no connection between Gozer and any actual figure from any human mythology, Mesopotamian or otherwise. Sorry, Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd just made Gozer up. But if you played the recent Ghostbusters video game, or if you've read any of IDW Publishing's recent Ghostbusters comics, the answer is actually yes. See, the writers of these particular works must have realized the same thing we did, that Gozer and Tiamat come from the same part of the world. And now, canonically, Gozer was actually banished from our reality by its, because Gozer is officially genderless, sister, Tiamat. Yes, that Tiamat. So, fan fiction away. But how can you use any of this in your game? Beyond, of course, just having Tiamat be a thing in your world whose blood could dissolve the evil wand of Orcus. Seriously, that's a thing. Look it up. The interesting thing here is that even though the various peoples of Mesopotamia had very similar creation myths and divine rosters, they elevated different figures and the deities they revered reflected their own values and worldviews. In the D&D universe, all of the various beings share one list of gods and one basic understanding of the creation of the cosmos. But each race also has a few special gods. Their patron and matron gods, their creator gods, whatever. And so, they must have mythologies that talk about their particular roles in the various events of the D&D mythos, whatever it is. And they probably emphasize different things. What stories do elves specifically tell about the creation of the universe and what was Corellan Larethian's role? And why was that the most important part of the story? See, it's one thing to write a mythology it's entirely another to show the mythology through all of the different beings of the world. This has been the GM Word of the Week. It was written by the Angry GM and recorded and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can find more at theangrygm.com and madadventurers.com. 